All right, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome back to this course, which is called Talmudic Ethics. And the goal of this course is to look at real ethical dilemmas, real ethical questions, not just ethical, legal, moral. There's a difference between moral and ethical, which we're not going to get into right now, but real questions, real life questions, and explore them from a uniquely Jewish perspective based on the teachings of the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is the great book of Jewish law and Jewish ethics, um, based, of course, on the, on the Torah and the Bible itself. And so what the, the wisdom that we're drawing for this conversation is going to be coming from the Talmud, as well as post-Talmudic commentaries. So today we look at the, uh, the issue of abortion. And as I mentioned kind of before we started, that abortion is one of the most hotly debated areas of conversation in our country, at least, for the last at least five decades um, plus. And it's a very important conversation. You have extremes, and then you have people that are a little bit more in the middle. You have extreme pro-life, extreme pro-choice. And then you have individuals that, many individuals, perhaps even the majority, that feel a little bit, can understand some arguments on the one side or on the other side, um, and, and, and feel like, in some cases, it might go this way, in some cases, it might go, that, might go that way. The goal of today's class is to look at the issue of abortion from a uniquely Jewish perspective, i.e., what does Jewish law, Jewish ethics say about abortion? Um, this is the, the, the goal, as I, again, I mentioned this just a few moments ago, the goal is to look at this not from a political perspective, to take politics out of it, and to really just look at the core, the core ideas, the core questions. And today, we're really going to be talking about some of the biggest questions of all. Like, when does life begin? According to Judaism, when does life begin? Um, the sanctity of life. These are themes that we've talked about in the first few lessons as well. Is how, how do you um, balance protecting one life versus protecting another life? What cases might be easier to, 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 uh, to understand the Jewish allowance for abortion, in what cases might be a little bit more difficult. We're going to be looking at this from many different sides and many different angles and looking at many different perspectives, even within Jewish law. Jewish law is not monolithic. As you know, two, rap, um, what do they say, two Jews? I almost got it wrong. I almost flubbed this one. Two Jews, three opinions. Oh, you say, I say four opinions. I'm kidding. Even this we have a dispute about. The point is, <laughs> the point is, that there is a lot of diversity within Jewish thought, even within modern rabbinic thought. And as we conclude, as we'll wrap up today's class, I will, I'll try to uh, um, give you a, a bit of a sense of the range of opinions that exist today with regard to the issue of abortion. But we're going to get to the core, uh, to the core ideas, and that's really the main, the main uh, focus of today's class. So I want to begin with a learning activity. Um, and you can, if you open up your booklets, you see it there on page, and this is, of course, in print and online as well. Um, it's page 50 of the, you know, of the, uh, it's the, the, running page, the running page number is page 50, but it's our opening learning activity. And we're going to give two um, hypothetical scenarios. These are not real case studies, but these will be our, you know, our, our hypothetical case studies and scenarios to kind of get the conversation started. All right, page 50, uh, learning activity one, consider the following hypothetical scenarios. Dina is expecting her third child when her husband suffers a massive stroke. It is uncertain if he will live, but even if he survives, 
The road to recovery will be arduous and the final outcome uncertain. Although she very much wanted this child before this tragedy struck, she has two other children to raise and a husband hovering between life and death. Carrying a, term, uh, carrying a baby to term seems too overwhelming. May she abort the fetus. Now, you might be thinking, may she abort the fetus? According to who? Right? According to what? <laughs> Federal law, state law, my own moral compass, my own consciousness, my own sense of right and wrong. But really, it's about understanding a scenario. Here's a scenario where um, she's in, in, in great stress, family is a bit in, 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 in much turmoil. The question about abortion is, the question is, may she abort this fetus? Question number two, or hypothetical scenario number two. While Rachel is pregnant, it is discovered that she is harboring a malignant tumor that threatens to metastasize due to the hormones caused by pregnancy. If she carries the baby to term, it will likely be too late to treat her. May she abort the fetus? Now, in the second scenario, in the second scenario, the question is a little bit different. What's the, what, how would you position the difference between scenario one and two? What's the core distinction? In the second case. In the first case, how would you, how would you characterize it? What's the, need? What's the need for the abortion? Right. So I would say that it's it's. Uh, so if we were to characterize it, I would put that as um, emotional and psychological stress of the in the first scenario. The second scenario is more of a life and death, mm-hmm. right? More of a of a life and death scenario. Saving your life, according to what you said the first time around, is the paramount issue. Yes. Yes. So I'm reading, I'm not a lawyer, but this is mandatory, it would seem to me. In scenario, which one? In scenario two. In, in Good. One Good. Where her life, right. right. Where the hormones, exactly, in, in case number two. Okay. Good. Good. Um, let's take a look. We're going to jump right into text one. Because this is really the core text, the core source in Talmudic literature that speaks about abortion. If you've, take, if you've heard Jewish lectures on abortion or cl- taken classes previously from others on abortion, on the issue of abortion, you have no doubt encountered this Mishnah. As, I'm just going to repeat myself. This is the one original source in Talmudic conversation about the issue of abortion. There's one text. But on this one text, there are multiple commentaries, and depending on which commentary you choose, will create a radical difference of opinion as to how you understand what this Mishnah is teaching. The Mishnah is part of the Talmudic literature. Here we go, text number one. Let's break it down. If a woman in labor has a life-threatening difficulty, one and I'm sorry that this gets a little bit graphic, but one dismembers the embryo within her, removing it limb by limb, essentially aborting the fetus, for her life takes precedence over its life. Okay? I'm reading this intentionally slow so that we can kind of try to slowly parse each word in each line because it's going to be very important. But once its greater part, which refers to the head, has emerged... It may not be harmed, 
For we do not set aside one life for another. Fascinating, right? The Talmud, the Mishnah, again, part of the Talmudic literature, the Talmud consists of Mishnah and Gemara. So this is the Mishnah. The Mishnah says that abortion is absolutely permitted. In fact, it seems like it's more than permitted. Mandatory, right? It doesn't say one may abort the fetus. It says you're supposed to abort the fetus. Why? For her life takes precedence over its life. Her life takes precedence over its life. Hey, welcome, Faith. Good to see you. Um, but once, but once the fetus, once the head, once the head has emerged, once the once birth has begun, then no longer can we take the life of the newborn, of the very recently newborn, or the head that emerges, to save the mother, even though the mother's life is at risk. At this point, we don't take one life to save another life. The whole head or just the crown? That's a good, that's a Jewish question. Look at that. That's a Talmudic question. That's a Talmudic question. The truth is, I'm not sure. We would have to look up the commentaries. I was looking on the internet. Yes. And uh, they said, uh, in the Orthodox Union's website, and it said the crown. The crown. How do we define the crown? The top. Yeah. The top of the head. It seems like, you see it says it's greater part, so does that mean the greater part of the head, or its greater part refers to the head, but even the crowning of the head? That's a good question. Sounds like the OU is saying that it's only the, even if it's only the crowning of the head, that's already filling, okay, Okay, we have to look that up, but that seems like the... Us like a oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Does it have the same halachic status, same Jewish legal status of a? Well, I don't even want to say more of because it depends on the commentaries as to how we make sense of this Mishnah. But would the same law? Let's just ask the question uh, uh, basically, uh, simply. Would the same law apply if the baby is coming out feet first? Excellent question. Good. Let's hold that question. Yeah. I'm wondering what the percentage of full-term births are that have an, a, an episode where the mother dies as the child is being born. In other words, I've never heard of that, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Yeah. But it, it, sounds, like, uh, it sounds like if the, if the baby is, is viable and, and being born, I wonder how many, what the percentages of mothers who die at that point or whose life is, is in peril at that point. In other words, you're asking how, how um, likely is this latter scenario. I would say just before, because I, I know you want to say something else, but I just, just to jump in on that, the truth is it might never happen and it doesn't have to happen. The Talmud is just exploring the parameters of the law. The Talmud often does this. It will talk about, I mean, the Talmud talks about some crazy scenarios. Um, I don't know why one comes, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter, yeah. the one that's in my head, but the Talmud talk, will talk often about like wild scenarios that might never happen, but just to explore like the theories of the law. So th- I think the point over here is that if cons- theoretically her life is at risk, but the baby's head is already starting to emerge, then it's a different scenario than prior to that moment. Does it have to say anywhere in the Talmud that, um, that uh, life begins at conception? Oh, we're going to get to that. Okay. We're going to get to that. The Talmud does discuss it. 
And it's a major piece of today's class. Today, by the way, we're gonna look at also the, where US law is about all of this and then bring it back to, uh, to, to the Talmudic conversation. Yes? Okay, I, I, uh, I was at this um, uh, over Passover, I went to this thing in, in Florida and the, the, they had different speakers and they, one of them was talking about uh, conception and, and, and all that. And uh, they were saying that at uh, like Georgia's law is at six weeks. Well, they said that's tr that's true. Cause they said it takes forty days. It's water otherwise, right? And then it takes forty days yes. to really be developed into anything. So there is a Talmudic teaching about yes. There, there is a Talmudic statement about 40 days, until 40 days. In fact, just to mention about this, it says the first 40 days after conception. Okay, let me rewind for a second. The Talmud says that, you can, that praying for the gender of a child is called a tefillat shav, is a wasted prayer. What are you praying for? It's already decided. But that's after 40 days. Until 40 days, into the first 40 days after conception, you can pray. Why? Because the gender is not yet, the Talmud says, the gender is not yet differentiated. In other words, it's not yet decided. And indeed, in modern medicine, modern science, is my understanding of, of, of medical science is that uh, gender is not yet differentiated for the first, what is it, for the first six weeks or so. Until, uh, in, until that stage of, of, of development. Yes, the Talmud refers to it as Maya Ba'alma, it's only water, i.e. It's, it's not yet developed into, um, into a fetus. So there might be a bit, a bit of a different scenario. Here, of course, we're talking about an embryo that has limbs because the, 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 the language of the Mishnah is that it is, uh, the, the abortion is done and, and the language says removing it limb by limb. So here the Mishnah is allowing for abortion at a, la at a later term than those first six weeks, right? Clearly we're talking about a fetus that has developed, that has gestated to the point that it has limbs, and nonetheless, the mission is clearly saying that abortion is permitted in the case where the, mom, the mom's life is threatened. Of course, the big question, the big question is why? And it seems to be, as the Talmud says, sorry, as the mission says, for her life takes precedence over its life. Now, the Mishnah doesn't give a reason why. Why does her life take precedence over its life? So if, if I were to ask you, why does the mom's life take, one of them is gonna live, one of them is going to die, it seems, right? The, 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 the fetus, the pregnancy is going to take the life of the mother, so what do we say? Take the life of the fetus, with the life, whatever, take, abort the fetus to save the mother's life. So why her life takes precedence over its life? If I were to ask you this question, which I am, why do you think her life, the mom's life, takes precedence over the life of the fetus? Because she can have more children. Okay, all right. What else? Good, what else? Because she has more children? No, because she could have more. Whereas if you take her life, then she can... Okay, it's, it's an interesting argument. Okay, I hear that. What else? Why do you think her life takes precedence? Okay. And if the, she dies and the, ba the baby lives, who is going to take care of the baby? Okay, right. Who's going to take care of the baby? Good. What else? A woman's work is really never done. 
What did you say? Yeah. <laughs> 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 and you know, to ask somebody else to step in for a woman to do all the things a woman does, I think is very difficult and unreasonable and won't get done. Does anyone think that the, that, thank you for sharing this, so does anyone think that the reason of the mission is because the mission is kind of ranking lives and saying that not just uh, utility and, and, and functionality in this moment, but in the context of what is a full life and what is perhaps not a full life, that, that the mother's life is a, is a full, alive life and the fetus's life is not yet a full life, it's not yet born, and so maybe that's why it has, it takes one takes presence over the other. Could be, could be. Maybe there's other, maybe there's other rationales. But I want to ask you this. What, what emerges from text one is that if the mom's life is at risk, then you abort the fetus. But there's a twist. And the twist is text number two on the next page, page 52. Take a look at, at, uh, at page 52, text number two. And this is a real case. This is a real case that was asked to a real rabbi in Israel. Um, and you'll see this is a bit of a modification from what we just said. Anne, who suffered from bone marrow cancer, needed a transplant and found only one matching donor, her pregnant sister, Leah. In order to perform the procedure without endangering Leah's life, an abortion was needed. Whose life takes precedence? Understand why this is a twist. So Leah is pregnant, and her fetus, her pregnancy, is not endangering her. Correct? But Leah's own sister needs a bone marrow transplant, or needs a, a, a transplant. Well, her sister would be putting both her life and the baby's at risk if she gives bone marrow. It seems to me that, because that, that's a serious thing when you take bone marrow from, from a person to give. It would have to be a medical decision, I guess. So one second, but here's the thing. So, Lay, so Anne would be the recipient, Leah would be the donor, but Leah is pregnant. And the doctors are saying that um, doing, the, doing the procedure while pregnant would endanger Leah's life. So the question is, do, sh from a Jewish perspective, should Leah have the abortion and then donate the marrow, or should she carry the fetus, carry the baby, give birth to the baby, even though her sister might die in the interim? In other words, whose life comes first? We said what we said before, that when the fetus is endangering the mother's life, there's no question you abort the fetus. But here the fetus is almost indirect, indirectly uh, um, affecting, potentially, the aunt's life, her mother's sister's life. Understand why this is a twist? Terrible. It's a terrible scenario. That's the question. In other words, all of this gets back. The point of this question, and we're going to give some answers to it by the end of the class, but the point of these scenarios is to get us thinking. You know, when we think about life, when we think about pregnancy, when we think about a fetus, when we think about the question of whose life comes first, can we make that decision? Can we take one life or is it a life to save another life? So, you know, if we say that the fetus is not a life, is not a full life, and the adult is a life, then maybe it wouldn't make a difference whether it's the mother's life that's at risk or the aunt's life. If the fetus is not a full life and we sacrifice, as it were, a partial life for a full life, then maybe this case would 
follow suit as well. If there's another rationale why we abort the fetus in the case of where the, the mother's life is in danger, then maybe that would only apply in the specific relation between mom and fetus that she's carrying. Maybe it wouldn't extend to the allowance for abortion where the mother's sister is at risk. Are you with me on this? It's a very, it's, it, but it gets back, it gets back to the principles. It gets back to the to understanding, not just, the Mishnah clearly tells us that where the mom's life is at risk, you do the abortion. You have to do the abortion. That's what the, the Mishnah tells us. The question is, how do you now apply that to other scenarios that are not exactly that case? Because how many cases are exactly that case? Most cases are not going to be exactly that small window. And because of that, it's important to understand the principles behind these ideas so that we can then explore other scenarios and other nuances. Yeah. Right. So he's talking about Leah. So, yeah. that, so then should she abort this child that may be her only child to save her sister? Now you could easily say, I don't mean you, one could easily say, it's a personal decision, let her make, it's a hard choice, let her make whatever choice she wants. And that's a valid, that's a valid approach. But we're trying to look at this from a perspective of, you know, from a Jewish framework understanding based on what the Mishnah tells us, based on understanding kind of why that is and then how to apply it from a Jewish perspective. Now, um, all of this comes down to uh, really the core question of when does life begin? And I will tell you that the question of when life begins is, because um, I want to switch now over to the U.S., and that's been very complicated over the last little bit, over the last year or so. Um, so let's, I, I wanna segue over to, to secular law, to the way that the US courts have dealt with these types of questions. Now, as I'm sure you all know, so Roe v. Wade, 1972, in Roe v. Wade, so the Supreme Court did not at all address the issue of abortion from the perspective of, or asking the question of when does life begin? In other words, the court did not at all get into this question. And understand why this is a relevant question. When it comes to abortion, if we posit that the fetus is alive, if, like, if, and I'm not saying when it happened, we'll explore this from a Jewish perspective soon, but if life begins at conception, it would be really hard to say that you kill, you take the life, take the full-fledged life. Again, if, if you say this, it would be hard-pressed to say you take one life to save another life. We don't do that. In a hospital, doctors don't kill one patient to save another patient. They triage, they allocate resources to focus on saving one, even though another one might not be saved, right? But to take one life to save another life would be medically, ethically, highly problematic. Which means that the allowance of abortion is if perhaps you say the life is not a full life. But this is a question, as you all know, that the Supreme Court did not get into. Because what happened in Roe v. Wade, which, by the way, was the culmination of a series of court decisions, it was all based on the 14th Amendment. What does the 14th Amendment say? And I'm not quoting this verbatim. It says essentially that no state, again, this is a U.S., it's a federal constitution. It says that no state has the ability to infringe on anyone's privacy, liberty, life, etc. 
And so the core, and this began with the question about birth control, and then it, and then it evolved into the, into, the, into the case of abortion, Roe v. Wade, and essentially the court said that the decision, the question about abortion is a privacy, it's a private, it's a private decision. And therefore, the federal government, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the federal government, sorry, ruled that based on federal law, no state has the ability to encroach on the privacy of a woman and her decision about her pregnancy. So they didn't get into the question of when life begins, the theories, the, the, the spiritual or the, the metaphysical or the physical elements of this. They didn't, it wasn't about a medical question. It was simply a privacy question. That's the way the courts dealt with it. What happened a year ago? Dobbs v. Uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization. What happened about a year ago? The court overturned it. Why'd they overturn it? Which, by the way, to me is fascinating. Because from a Jewish, from a, I'm, this is outside of this, I'm going to get into the specifics of why the Supreme Court overturned it in a second. I don't mean why, I mean the rationale that they used to overturn it. But before I get there, I just want to say, to me, the concept is fascinating, how a later Supreme Court could overturn an earlier Supreme Court ruling. In Jewish law, it would not be so simple. It's, an inch, it's a fascinating thing. Because in Jewish law, once a law once a rabbinic court has passed, has enacted a law, or has come to a conclusion about something, in order to change it, you would need a court that's greater in number and greater in wisdom. So that's an interesting wrinkle. But in this country, it seems, I'm not an expert in, in, the, in, in the Constitution, in, in the federal, I'm not a, I'm not a, legal, a U.S. legal expert, but it is, I find it interesting, fascinating, really, that, that courts can just reverse course some decades later, you know, Anyway, but so what did the court say? The court in, recently, right, about a year ago, in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which was a case out of Mississippi, the Supreme Court essentially reversed the decision of the court five decades ago and said that there's no way the, the majority decision, the way it was written, said in, in, in layman's terms, there's no way that the 14th Amendment protects abortion, a woman's, woman's right to choose. There's no way, it's not possible. How do we know this? Because the 14th Amendment was written by individuals when they, when they wrote that no state can encroach on privacy, on, on, on liberty of the individual, etc. They did not mean abortion. How do we know this? Because it wasn't legal then. So obviously they didn't mean to include that. How can you say that the 14th Amendment allows for abortion when those very individuals who signed that document, who wrote those documents, did not believe that you could have abortion. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. You see, you see the argument? It's almost like a technical argument. It's like, there's no way that was the intention. Now, one could argue, the counter-argument is, who cares what they intended? <laughs> if we're going by what they intended, then only free white males should have any protections at all in, in our country. So you want to undo everything? That's the counter argument. So it gets, this is where it is on a, on a legal level. Just because uh, I know there's a lot of talk about this and not always, it's very hard to actually get the facts of what's going on when you hear, when you read the news or hear the news, you get like a lot of other talking points. Sometimes the essential facts are missing. So just the essential facts in the US in 1972, just the two court decisions, the two major decisions. The Supreme Court in 1972 ruled that based on the 14th Amendment, it's a private issue, a private matter. We're not going to get involved. By the way, even according to that decision, 
late in later stages of pregnancy, the state is allowed to get involved because then it is considered to be of the state interest, whatever. So there are provisions over there as to when, where in the pregnancy we're talking, but at least certainly in the earlier parts, it's a private issue and, and, and the government should stay out of it. Again, about a year ago, the court reversed that decision and said that no, it's not a private issue, or sorry, that privacy does not mean pregnancy. It never was intended to mean that, and it doesn't mean that, and thus it's back up to the states to decide whatever they want, but it's not protected by the 14th Amendment because clearly they didn't mean to, that, that's not what they intended when they wrote those words allowing for those protections. It did not include pregnancy. Okay, so that's where, that's where U.S. law is on this currently, and obviously this is a very, very, very hotly debated topic, but it doesn't at all address the question of when does life begin. And I think for many of us, that would be probably an important thing to talk about. When does life begin? So that we can have, so if we're trying to figure out how we feel about this, when, when life begins is probably a relevant piece of the conversation. In, in this case, why, why do so many Jewish organizations support abortion? So, so many Jewish organizations support, and synagogues support abortion. Um, I mean, the Mishnah supports abortion. Okay. Now, it, 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 the case of the mission is talking about where the mom's life is at risk. Today, we're going to see how far that goes. Oh, okay. So some states don't have that in there. Then that's why they might. Yeah. I, and I, and I, I, so I, I probably the, the simplest answer is I can't tell you why Jewish organizations, you know, every, every you would have to ask them where they're coming from and what they're, I, I can't comment on, on that. The goal here is to look at this from a, a bit from, from a Jewish perspective and, and explore the range of opinions on it that all derive from the, the core Mishnah teaching. And it's going to be a fast, it's going to be, I think, a, a very compelling conversation. And again, there's going to be a range of opinions, but it's going to be very, I think it's going to be very helpful um, overall. Now, text number three, let's just jump to text number three. We're, go, we're back to the issue now that the U.S. courts ignore, which is when does life begin? And, and maybe it's better, I don't know if it's better or worse, but maybe it's fine that the U.S. courts, secular courts, don't get into this question because it is a bit of a metaphysical question, but Judaism certainly talks about meta, meta, the metaphysical. So let's, let's jump into this. Fascinating Talmudic debate between a rabbi and a Roman politician in general, Antoninus. Roman politician in general, Antony, says the following, Antoninus asked Rebbe, Rebbe was Rebbe Yehuda Nasi, the author of the Mishnah that we just read before. When is the soul placed into man? Wow, what a question. What a question. When is the soul? What, what is the Jewish definition of the soul? I mean, what is it? Ah, uh, now we're getting to a real question. <laughs> Good. What is it? So on a, on, a, on a basic level, we would say, that a soul is life. In other words, the soul is the force of life that gives life. You know, when a person passes away, the body is still there, right? The, the body is still there. A moment before they were alive, a moment later they've, they're no longer alive. What, what changed? Well, they're, they're not, their organs are not functioning, their brain is But what, what constitutes that change? So there's a force of life that is no longer there. On a very basic level, soul equals life. 
The body is not life in and of itself because the body could be alive, could not be alive. The same physical body with all the limbs intact and all the organs in, it, in its place, but could, might not be alive. So the difference between life and death, we call the soul. I think the pro- some, sometimes the challenge is that language triggers things, like you use the word like God or angels or souls, and then we have an image of what that looks like. But if we, and I think that's why it's a very good question that you're asking, if we strip away all of the preconceptions and we define soul simply as life, so really the question is when does life begin? When does the body, when is the body considered to be alive? When does the soul enter the body? So here's the question. Antoninus asked Rebbe, when is the soul placed into man? Is it from the moment of conception or from the moment of the embryo's formation, i.e. when it takes on human form, which might be that 40 days later or might be even at a later stage? So Rebbe said, from the later, uh, from the later point in time, from the time of formation. Interesting. The rabbi says, not from conception, later on. And Tanina said to him, says the Roman general and politician, back to the rabbi, can a piece of meat remain for three days without salt and not become putrid? Must it not be rather that the soul enters the person from the moment of conception? He says, how could you have something that has no soul, that has no life, that, that goes on until the point that it becomes formed, the human form? So what was there before then? If it existed, it has to have some sort of energy, some sort of battery pack to keep it going so that it can gestate, so that it can develop into, into that state of formation, whatever timeline that is. The point is it has to have had some sort of soul that's giving it some sort of life, energy, vitality, or uh, uh, just, f- just basic existence. There has to be some sort of existential force that is keeping it into place. Now, this, is, this ends the dialogue. So the question that the commenters wonder is, well, did the rabbi retract? Does he agree that there's some sort of soul, some sort of life force at conception? Does he maintain his position that it's a little bit later? So that's, uh, that's a little bit of a, of a question itself. Text number 4a, we're, again, we're quoting different uh, Talmudic passages that speak about the, 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 uh, when, when does life begin, the question of when does life begin. This is a pretty famous passage that says a lot of pretty wild things. Rabbi Simlai said, a, a famous Talmudic excerpt that says a lot of uh, wild things. Rabbi Simlai said, the fetus inside its mother's womb is like a folded document. It, it eats, and by the way, the Talmud, it's like there's dot, dot, dot there. I, I don't know why it was cut out, but basically um, it, re, it, it, said, it talks about how, it, talks about the, it describes the fetal position. Of the fetus, kind of like folded over. Okay, it eats. That's what it means, like a folded document. Like back in the day, I guess they would fold their documents. I don't know. <laughs> Nowadays, we have our documents digital form, so whatever. It eats from the mother's food and drinks from the mother's drink. A light is lit over its head, and it sees from one end of the world to the other. As it says, his light shines upon my head. There are no better days for a person than the months spent in the womb. And the angels teach the fetus the entire Torah. Look at that. Ah, it was only downhill from there. <laughs> All right. It says, not, it was, it was ne- it's never as good as those times. Um, and as soon as it, as it is about to emerge into the world, an angel comes and slaps it on the mouth, causing it to forget the entire Torah. <laughs> Almost had it. <laughs> Foiled by those rascally angels. By the way, that's the, that's the legend of why we have that little um, the thing on the lip, you know, the, I got a mustache here, but whatever, that little, right, whatever, I don't know what that's called, the indentation. I don't know that that's actually that, but 
says the angel taps it on its lip, which raises the question, this is a very parenthetical piece of the conversation, because obviously we're citing this not to talk about angels and, and lip smacks, but now that we are, uh, so it does say that, the question is asked, if, the, if, the, if, the, 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 if we forget the Torah when we're born, so then why do we spend so much time studying it? And the answer is so that it will be familiar to us. It's like hearing an, a, an old tune and that, it, oh, it comes back. So when we study Jewish wisdom, it, it sounds familiar, it seems familiar, etc. Okay, text 4b. Take a look with the great Maharala Prague. Uh, some of you may, may be familiar with the legend of the golem, right? The golem that the Maharal made. That was the protector of the Jewish people in Prague back in the day. Anyway, text 4b he explains what this light is. If you may have noticed, it's that a light is lit over its head. What is that? LED? <laughs> Incandescent? What did they have back then? So a light is lit over its head and it sees from one end of the world to the other. So the Maral says the following, text 4b, the light is a reference to the soul. As the soul is compared in the book of Proverbs to a candle of God. At the time when the fetus is in its mother's womb, it is not, oh, look at this, it is not integrated with the body. That's why it says that the light is above its head, which implies that there's a soul, but it's not integrated with the body yet. It achieves a total union with the body upon its emergence into the world. This is the meaning of a light is lit over its head. Even though the soul is already present in the body, it is not totally integrated with it. It is merely over its head. Like if somebody says, oh, that went over my head, it means they heard it. Maybe they understand it a little bit, but they don't fully, it's not fully integrated in their knowledge and their understanding. So it's over your head. So over its head means that there is a soul. The soul is in the body, but it's not fully integrated with the body. It's, it's a little... Now, how do we make sense of this? What does that mean? Well, on a very basic level, on a very uh, a basic uh, um, biological level, one way of explaining this, and I, I don't, I'm not presuming that this is the only way of understanding it, but one way to understand this would be um, that, think about it, and the Talmud says this before, uh, um, the, the fetus eats from the mother's food and drinks from the mother's drink. The, the fetus is not breathing on its own. When I say breathing on its own, it's not breathing oxygen. It's not, it's not, it's not functioning in, a, in an autonomous way. Right when it's when it's in utero, when it, when it's when it's uh, yeah when it's in the uterus of its mom, and so thus we can say that perhaps that when when we talk about a soul, which would be, you know, a person's I don't know for lack of a better term battery pack that keep them going and keep them you know uh, uh, sustained as a as a as a viable autonomous being, so that is not fully integrated as long as the child as long as the fetus is in its mother's womb, it's not on its own. When is it on its own? At childbirth. What's the first thing the child does? It cries, says, Oi, now I gotta breathe on my own? It's for the who needs this? It was so good in the womb. That's what the Talmud says. It was ne it's never as good. All your needs are taken care of. You don't do anything. Right? You're just floating. It's great. Just floating and and all your needs, it's warm, you're taken care of, it's all good. But that also means that you're not. It's not a full-fledged life. So, sorry, I'm using the word life. You're not fully-fledged. There's, no, there's no autonomy yet. There's no full-fledged autonomy of being. There's a being that's, you know, the joke. You know, you ask the Jewish mother, when is the fetus viable? When it graduates medical school, right? <laughs> that's the joke, right? 
the joke. So it seems, now this is not a legal teaching, Text 4a text 4a is from the Talmud. It's not necessarily a legal teaching, it's just describing the scenario. But what it seems to imply, based on the commentary of the Maral, is that there is a soul, but it's not fully integrated until birth. By the way, in Jewish thought, even at birth, it's not fully integrated. Even at birth. Until the baby naming or the Brit Milah, the circumcision, then it becomes more. And then it's not it's still not fully integrated. Bar and bat mitzvah is when it really integrates. And then there are different stages. In other words, when do we really stay? Because even a child who now needs to breathe and eat and drink on its own is still not really eating and drinking on its own. Right? It's being fed. Right? It's being fed. It's being nourished. So, yes, it's all, everything's relative. Right? So relative to a stage of of, of pre-birth in utero, this is, whoa, this is independence, <laughs> based on, but relative to when you're 40 years old and on your own and on your own two feet and whatever, this is way dependent. This is not independence, this is dependency. So it's all relative. So really life, the, probably the most accurate way we can describe this is that life, when does life begin, is a really impossible question to answer. When does life begin? I don't know. It evolves in different stages. When, when, is the, when is the soul first associated with the body? That happens by the conception or even before conception. The light is over its head, though. It's not fully integrated until birth, and then it becomes integrated a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and, 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 and it's, a slow, it's a slow and evolving process. But thus the question is, at that point, um, at the stage of the fetus, when the soul is above its head, is that enough, as it were, enough of a life to render the taking of that life, i.e. the abortion, problematic? Or do we say that since, it's not, since birth hasn't happened yet, so maybe it's not a full life? Does that make sense? As you posited before. So we know that it's not the same. It's clearly not the same. When what, before the child before the fetus is born to after the child is born, that's a two clear, clearly different uh, stages. But the question is, how much life do we grant that state where the soul is above its head and not fully integrated? Is how how much of life is that? Yeah. You keep talking about conception. Yeah. All right. What about all those frozen embryos? Great question. I would I would say. So I think there's a question, frozen embryos. There's a well, big maybe question. Not everybody understands what I'm talking about. That this, these, ba- these embryos were put in so that a, a parent or a future parent could have a baby. Right. This wasn't because, gee, I had nothing else to do. Sure. So now there, there were seven of them. Right. And we didn't want to put seven Right, because that's not, yeah, that's, that's too many. So we put in two, hopefully. Right. So we have five out there. Right. What happens to them? Fantastic question. Fantastic question. It's a fantastic question. Was it inappropriate? No, not, no, not, no, absolutely appropriate. It's a fantastic question. I think that um, I recall uh, reading up on this topic like a number of years ago. My recollection, so don't, don't quote me on, I mean, you can quote me on this, but I, I, can't, I can't say this with, uh, you know, with certainty, but my recollection was that an embryo 
that's outside of the uterus has a different status than an embryo inside a uterus. Because an embryo inside the uterus is on a path to birth. In other words, there is a natural process by which this will end, continue to develop and then right, gestation will continue and, and then ultimately be born. Whereas the embryo, a frozen embryo in a lab, left in that state is not going to develop. So therefore it is not on that path, therefore would have a different status. My understanding is that halakhically, from a Jewish legal perspective, there, there's, there's not a problem in destroying those embryos that are pre-implant. Yeah, that's what the, what the, under this new thing. I don't know. So I don't know. And I know that sometimes there is, uh, there are religious, not Jewish, but other religious opinions on this that are, that are, that are very extreme. Again, my recollection, and I believe I'm correct in my recollection, is that so long that it's, as long as it's not in a space where it can develop and gestate, it does not have the same status as anything that we're talking about now. It would be akin to um, genetic material that's, that's, that's pre, um, uh, pre-fertilization. So if you have an egg or sperm, you know, those, are, those are potential life. And even a frozen embryo is still, at that stage, still potential life. It's not, it's not even in the state of, of what we're talking about here. We're talking about here a situation where that left to its own natural devices, at some point, this will develop, this will gestate, this will, this will lead to, to hopefully a birth, a healthy birth. Like making a cake, you don't have all the ingredients. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You're missing, you're missing a womb. You're missing a uterus. That's a major piece. It's not a minor piece. It's a major piece. And again, it's not just, it's not just a, a context, a space. It means that in its cur- the question is, in its current state, will, will anything happen? The answer is no. In its cur- without a medical procedure of implantation, this will not happen. The question that you're asking, though, we can expand it. So let's say the doctors say, let's put in four, not two. Let's implant four because we're thinking based on her history, based on the medical situation, right? Four maybe will lead to one or two. What happens if all four become... Right? Take. Take hold. And now she's pregnant with four. And the doctors are like, this is way too dangerous. Now the question is, can you, it's called, uh, um, it's called embryonic, it's called um, a fetal reduction. Can you reduce from four, let's say, to two? I mean, that touched on the question of abortion, of course. And that is, again, that, that circles back to our conversation today, even though it may not be to save the life of the mother, maybe it's to save the viability of the other fetuses. Does that make sense? Four can't survive, two can. So now can you take one to save the other amongst the fetuses? There are so many permutations of this question. These questions are all discussed, by the way, in Jewish law. We're not going to get to all of the different permutations. Yeah. Okay. So I understand that the Talmudic that law is concerned about the physical health of the mother. Yes. Are they concerned about the mental? Yes. We're going to get there in a second. Yes. That's going to be one of the major pieces that we deal with today. Yes. So in, in Which, by the way, relates. If you recall, we had two hypothetical yes, scenarios. The I'm first saying. hypothetical was she is, her husband's dying. Her kids need her. Yes. She wanted to get pregnant, but now she does not want to be pregnant anymore. So the question is, like, how um, adverse, how adversely will this affect her health? 
And that's going to be a major component, as we'll see. My question was, was going to be, what if she sees a, a divorce in the future? Let's say that her husband, she gets pregnant by him, but then he leaves and says, I'm finished. Right. And, and she knows it's over. Should it be, why should she have a third child? and put that extra burden on herself when she knows she won't have it. Okay, so we'll, we will maybe touch more indirectly on that. We'll directly touch on the first case, uh, first scenario that we mentioned. But, let, but hold that, because we will be talking about the, the mental and emotional health of, uh, of the mom in a, in a moment. But first, this is the much-promised commentaries on the original Mishnah that I told you about from the beginning, that there's going to be two major commentaries. And I'll tell you now the names of them. Page 56, text 5a and 5b. These are uh, N5C. These are the two major um, medieval Jewish scholars, Rashi and Rambam. Rashi is the great biblical and Talmudic commentary uh, from France, and Rambam, Maimonides, is the great um, a commentary who was from originally from Spain and then eventually settled in Egypt. So Rashi and Rambam have radically different ways of understanding the Mishnah. Now, in case you're wondering, what's the Mishnah? Let's reset. Text 5a, we read this before, but this is the Mishnah that the commentaries are quoting. So let's just reread it so that's fresh in our mind. Text 5a. If a woman in labor has a life-threatening difficulty, one dismembers the embryo within her, removing it limb by limb. Why? For her life takes precedence over its life. But once its greater part head has emerged, it may not be harmed, for we do not set aside one life for another. That was the Mishnah. Let's understand the rationale according to Rashi, and the rationale according to Rambam, they say different things. Text 5b is Rashi. Rashi explains why. Why is abortion in that scenario of the Mishnah, where her life, where the mom's life is at risk, why is that permitted and even necessary? The reason is, says Rashi, text 5b, is that a fetus is not a nefesh, a full living soul. Rashi clearly says, lav nefesh hu. It is not a living soul. In other words, the mother is alive. The fetus is not a full life yet. It's on, it's, it's on a path to full life, right? As we said before, life is an evolving soul. Integration is an evolving process. It's on that path. It's in, it's in, it's in the mother. It's, going, it's heading down that path, but it's not there yet. And so, lav nefeshu, it's not a soul. It's not a full living being. So therefore, if you have the question of whose life comes first, the mother or the fetus, it's not a question. The mother. Ram, that's Rashi. Now, by the way, this would open up abortion to perhaps other scenarios that are not even life-threatening because you could say that it's not a full life. The fetus is not a full life. If it's not a full life, then we can already find a little bit more allowance. There's a little bit more leeway when it comes to the question of abortion. So yes, the Mishnah talked about a case of life and death, but what about severe psychological cha- uh, um, a trauma or, or pain or suffering or emotional difficulties? That perhaps would also be included. Text 5c, however, is Maimonides, Rambam. Take a look at what he writes. He's talking about a case of, well, it's a very interesting scenario. He's talking about a case where you see somebody who's about to murder someone else. God forbid. Imagine you, you're, you're standing somewhere and you see somebody about to brutally murder someone else. And the only way to stop the murderer is by taking their life. Here's a question. 
Are you allowed to take their life to save the innocent victim's life? What do you think? I know what you're thinking. Just, uh, you know, incapacitate him some other way. Let's say you can't. Let's say there's no other way to stop him. The only way to stop the murderer is by killing the murderer before they're able to take the life of the victim. Jewish law says, absolutely, you're allowed, you're allowed to and must take the life of the murderer. Why? Even though we're not supposed to take life. But in this case, the murderer is in a different category of being. Why? And I'm going to give you the, the Hebrew term. This person is, is called now, their status is a rodef. This is going to be very important. Rodef. Rodef means a pursuer of life. So you can't take human life. However, someone who's about to take someone else's life is deemed to be a rodef, a pursuer of life, and then all bets are off. So, text 5c. Rambat Maimonides writes the following, This too is a negative commandment, not to have compassion on the life of a pursuer of a rodef. In other words, if you see someone about to kill someone else, don't have compassion on the murderer. Take their life so they don't take, take another life. Therefore, listen to this, he correlates it to abortion. Therefore, the sages ruled that when a woman has difficulty in labor, one may dismember the embryo within her, either with drugs or surgery, because it is like a pursuer seeking to kill her. But once the head has emerged, he may, not, he may not be harmed. If we do not set aside one life for another, this is the natural course of the world. I want to I make sure that the main point of Maimonides, of what Rambam is writing, is clear. By the way, Rambam is the Hebrew way, is his Hebrew name. Maimonides is the, is the way he's referred to in English. Same guy. Rambam says the following. Maimonides says the following. That when the mother's life is endangered in the pregnancy... From a le Jewish legal uh, uh, convention, we consider the fetus to be a rodef, a, a pursuer of life. Whose life? The mother's life. Now, a rodef doesn't have to be intentional. Sometimes a rodef could be, it's not like the fetus is trying to kill the, the, its mother. It has no ill intent. But it's not about intention. It's about facts on the ground. When one life is endangering the other, that the, 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 the endanger of life is called a rodef, and you're allowed to take that life. Like, for example, the plane, when, remember when the planes, 9-11, were flying into the... Could you shoot the plane out of the sky? Ethically, morally, legally. <coughs> what about all the innocent people on board? But if you consider that situation to be a rodef, a pursuer of life, then you might say you're allowed to take... You understand what I'm saying? So you, when, 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 when one entity is endangering another entity, you're allowed to take out the threat of danger. Maimani says it's not because the mom's life is a full life and the fetus's life is not a full life. It's a straight-up case of rodef. When it comes to rodef, you have two adults, one pursuing the other. You take out the pursuer. It's not about full life or half life. In other words, the fetus might be a full life, but it's endangering the life of the mom. So therefore, therefore, you take out the life, sorry, therefore you take out the pursuer, and that's why abortion is allowed. What emerges from this is we have two completely different rationales for why the Mishnah rules that abortion is allowed when the mom's life is at risk. Rashi says, because mom is full life, fetus, not full life. And Maimani says, they're both full lives, but one is endangering the other. You take out the danger. How would this play into our twist case? A twist case, meaning the, the case that was, if you recall, we had a case where there were 
two women, sisters, right? One needs a bone marrow transplant. The other one can give the bone marrow, right? Can be the donor. The one that can give, it was Anne and Leah, I think. Anne? Yeah. Anne? <laughs> Anne. Anne and Leah. Anne needed, desperately needs the bone marrow. Leah is the perfect match. She's pregnant. And we asked the question, can, but, but it's dangerous for her to get. So can she abort in order to then give bone marrow to save her sister's life? According to Rashi, According to Rashi she can. Correct. Why? Because to save a life when it's not a full life, absolutely. According to Rambam, not so simple. Why? Because the fetus was only allowed to be aborted in the mission's case because it was a threat, because it was, in, because it was a rodeth, endangering a life. The fetus is not endangering Anne's life. Anne has bone marrow cancer. That's what's endangering her life, not the fetus. Correct? In the case of the pregnancy, the mission, in the case of the pregnancy, the fetus is literally endangering her mother's life. So, how oh, I say her mother? Its mother's life. I don't know. If, right? So the fetus is endangering its mother's life. So therefore, you abort the fetus. According to Maimonides, you abort the fetus because it's the pursuer of life. But, according to, but, but in the case where it's not the mother that's in, that's in danger, but the, the ant, the fetus is not endangering the ant. So then it might be more question. I'm not saying no, but it might be more questionable from Maimonides' approach, which means, and, and, and I know it's a little bit complicated we're into different rationales, theories behind the law, but I think it's fascinating to, to, to take you behind the curtain, so to speak, of Jewish law, and to show you how you have a core teaching in the Mishnah. No one argues about that. That's a core teaching. But the question is, why? Why does the Mishnah say that you, you perform the abortion when the mom's life is at risk? Is it because Rashi... Is it because her life is full and the, and the fetus's life is partial or because the fetus is a threat to the mom? Based on how you answer that question, based on how you understand the Mishnah, the paths, of, or the question of, of abortion, uh, the paths diverge somewhat. So, so uh, for the next two minutes, I just want to go through a few different points. A few different points. And that is the contemporary application. These are, these are Rashi and Maimonides, Rashi and Rambam, they lived in the 1100s. They lived eight, 900 years ago. In the last eight, 900 years, there's been a lot of subsequent conversation about, so what do we do practically? What scenarios are modern rabbis, modern, leading modern rabbis are actually also a little bit divided on the issue. Some take Maimonides' stricter approach to almost limit, limit to, to more closely uh, um, see abortion as more, you know, uh, uh, unquestionably allowed in cases where the fetus is more directly impacting the mother. So whether it's physically, like in the case of the Mishnah, or extreme, like if there's an extreme psychological or emotional impact that the fetus is having on the mother, right? So that would be more of an uh, uh, um, allowed, whereas other cases might not be so, so permissive. Whereas if you look at this according to Rashi, not that that opens it up to all cases of, you know, to just, you know, willy-nilly, but there is, there is more of allowance if we consider the fetus to not be a full life. So just to, to give you a few scenarios that, 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 that have been discussed in, in the last several decades, um, there was a case of uh, a question about Tay-Sachs, which we know is a, is a very, unfortunately, a very a, a somewhat common um, Ashkenazi genetic uh, disorder. 
So Tay-Sachs is a fatal disease that kills the child before the age of four. So rabbis were asked, what, 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 hap- what if we can test you know, pre-embryonic genetic screening? You test, not pre-embryonic, but embryonic genetic screening. You're testing the embryo and you're, and you're seeing that the, the embryo, uh, the fetus, I'm sorry, the fetus has, um, um, has Tay-Sachs. So then, and, and which is going to be detrimental to the child's health and detrimental to the parents' uh, mental health and, and emotional well-being. So rabbis, uh, there's a Rabbi Waldenberg, who's more lenient. Rabbi Feinstein, who we quoted in previous classes, is a little bit more, a little bit more, um, you know, less, a little less lenient on that. But there are, there's, there's, the point is that there's a bit of a range of opinions on this, even in modern, in, even in the modern day. But these are real questions that come up. Because of these types of questions, that's why, as, as I'm sure many of you know, in the Jewish community, there's a lot of pre-genetic uh, screening, I say pre, pre-even marriage or pre-pregnancy genetic screening to check out the status of the parents and to see you know, what, what, are, what, are their, what are their options in having children. Um, In the case of the bone marrow transplant, just to go back, I'm just trying to see what, what I want to get in before the time, because we're, we're right at the time now. So in, in that case of the bone marrow transplant for the ant, so there is one rabbi who says there's a way to do this that satisfies all the opinions. And that is begin the bone marrow transplant, begin the transplant. Like begin this on, the, on, on, on Leah, on the sister, right? Begin the, to, to, to extract the bone marrow. And if, it might be fine, but if the, if the procedure is, is turning dangerous because of the pregnancy, at that point, then you abort because then the pregnancy is directly affecting the mom. But that sounds like you're trying to set up a medical emergency, which I would not, which is a little, in and of itself, a little bit, uh, a, a little, a little bit questionable if we want to even go that route. Yeah. What if you, uh, if you can tell that your, your child has, uh, is going to be handicapped in some way, always going to have that syndrome? Yeah. What what is done in that? So there's there's no there's no one there's no one answer. Just as there's no one answer, I mean, parents being told that, that being informed of that, pa- different parents will have a different will have different reactions, right? Some will 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 you know not think even about abortion. Some will think very seriously about abortion. And again, if you go if you take a Jewish route and consult with a, with a competent rabbinic authority. There is a bit of a range of opinions on that, and, and it all goes back to the same source understood in two different ways. One understanding gives more allowance, right? considering that life does not begin until birth. It's not, until then, it's not full life. The other one will take a bit of a bit more stringent approach, not to say that even according to that opinion, it would be problematic. It might, there might be other factors, and, and, and every case is obviously, like in any medical case, it's always case by case. There's no hard and fast rule. Um, but really, the difference between Rashi and Rambam, which is at the core of the Jewish perspective on abortion, but, you know, how you understand the Mishnah, is, is the question that, that we asked before, and I just want to come full circle. When does life begin? According to Rashi, it's not full life until birth. According to Rambam, it might be. We don't really know. He just says it's about, it's about Rodev. So that seems to imply that he deems it full life. But we don't know. There are commentaries that say even according to Rambam, he also agrees that it's not full life, but he's also throwing in the rodef for whatever reason. So it's really hard to know definitively, but that leads to a bit of a range of, of positions. 
The point today was really not to come to any hard and fast conclusion. Again, any case, any scenario, any life question, certainly when it comes to a medical decision, certainly when it comes to something that, that very much affects the well-being, uh, physical, mental, uh, psycho psychological, emotional well-being of, 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 of individuals and multiple parties, certainly that, those are very serious questions that ha need a lot of serious discussion. But I think what emerges from this is that there is a that there is a place to have a conversation that is not in the it's not about politics it's not about you know affiliations with one side or another side but it's about the core issues that I think most of us find to be the most meaningful when does life begin how do we view you know the origins of life and and our responsibilities to that remember and I'll just conclude with this and then we'll take questions um, and this is a, a recurring theme in the U.S. secular view what the guiding principle is always rights, which is why the question in 1972 and the question in 2022, the Supreme Court in their, in their decision, what they, what they came to is, is this something that is supported by the rights of the 14th Amendment? Is it a woman's right to choose? It's a question about rights. Judaism is less, less focused on rights and more about responsibilities. What is our responsibility to life? Which will then lead to the question, well, is it a life or not a life? And that's, and that's the question. So it reframes the question. And, and it, does that provide more clarity? I don't know that it provides more clarity, but at least it moves it to a different, a different conversation. It's not about my rights versus your rights, the government's right versus a, pr a private right. It's not about rights. It's our responsibility. Responsibility to life, responsibility to whose life, to the mother's life, to the life or partial life or future life of the, of the fetus last child. And these are the questions. So again, I, I want to be very clear here, and the intention is not to provide hard and fast answers because even today, if you ask multiple rabbis, you will probably get multiple opinions, nuances. But if it's a, if it's a competent rabbinic authority, it will all be based on core original teachings. It's not going to be you know, from left field. It's not going to be, well, I feel emotionally that this, that, or the other. It's going to be based, grounded on scholarship. And that, I think, is, uh, is, is a very important way to do this. So this will conclude, this is our third lesson, this concludes the focus on life and death issues. If you recall, in lesson one, we talked about a case study from the Holocaust, whose life, um, you know, who, 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 how do you prioritize one life versus the other? Last week, we also spoke about life and death issues regarding end-of-life care, medical care. And this week, of course, we talked about beginning of life. When does life begin? And decisions made about beginning of life. Next week, we're going to get into a different topic altogether. These will be the lighter topics. I mean, still, still deeper conversations, still deep conversations, but a bit of a lighter topic. Next week, we talk about free speech. How do we balance free speech uh, against slander or the public right to know against the protection of privacy, paparazzi versus Hollywood, right? All of these, these types of questions. Um, when is press too intrusive? When is it you know, the, the right to know? And these are questions that have gone to the courts. Yeah, we all know about reporters that went to jail even they didn't that want to divulge their sources. You know, at what point does freedom of speech overstep its grounds? What about people that want to protest, you know, in protest, that want to cite, spout anti-Semitism in front of the Chabad of Cobb and, and other synagogues, right? When does free speech cross that line? When does privacy, my right to say whatever I want, when does that um, run into other considerations? We'll look at this from a Jewish perspective as well as from a U.S. perspective. Clearly, that protest was not shut down, um, but it's, it provides a fascinating topic of discussion. So I look forward to seeing you all then next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. I know you guys had...
both have questions. Yeah? Yeah, the issue, the issue right now uh, in reality in our country is that an unviable pregnancy, that is, for example, with someone that I knew who, who in the seventh month, I think it was, the, the wife found out the mother that the child didn't have part of the mm. head. So let's say it's a non-viable birth. It was someone that I taught school with. And so now the, the assumption is, well, that woman, uh, she can't have the abortion to have to remove that child until the ninth month. That's right. how severe the, the laws right. are being discussed. That, that's, that would be a Talmudic thought. That would be an abomination. I, I would think... And again, I would have to look into it more and look into the case. You know, everything is particular. And, but yeah, based on what we've said, if, you know, certainly according to Rashi, it's anyway not a full life. And it can't, it's not viable to, to you know, birth, life at is not, is not viable. Certainly there would be a lot of room to say that that would be um, permissible. And is, is puts the mother at risk. Sure. Because the mother, you know, this is the, that's what's going on in Texas. So I, right, and I think that sometimes um, issues become so polarized, and 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 people and groups and whatever it is, you know, feel they need to take absolute stances. And I think one of the beautiful things about looking at this from a Jewish perspective, which is by no means the only perspective, but as a rabbi, certainly this is a perspective that's that's near and dear to my heart. But I, I think one of the things about this is to see how you can have nuance in a situation and, and, and you can have, you know, uh, uh, shades of gray. Uh, this would, would seem to be more permissible, maybe a little bit less. Maybe there's other mitigating factors, but an absolute hard and fast rule is, um, and, and I don't know, and, and I know in halacha and Jewish law, the, a rabbi will never issue a blanket, it will never happen. If you ever have a situation where rabbi, on these types of questions, issues a blanket ruling, like all abortions allowed or not allowed, whatever it is, all, then you know, find another rabbi, because that is not, because every case, literally every case, is case by case. Do we have to get all these philosophers and religious people involved in something that I think can be handled better scientifically? That's a good question I mean, as well. It, it just muddies the issue. I mean, nobody right. knows. You know, we're sitting here talking about you know rabbis who made decisions and who died in 1204. Right. Like what? Uh, what's his name? Maimonides. Maimonides. So I mean, we're, we're, we're climbing the issue. We're sure. making it more difficult. Yeah. And I personally, my daughter had a complicated pregnancy with a possibility of abortion and stuff like right. that going on. So, you know, nobody can get up. You know, they have to make these decisions yes. themselves. Absolutely. Based on what they know and, you know, what, what experts know. Yes. Exactly. And I, they, thank you for saying that because I agree with that 100%. And my mind is would, also, would also agree with that. And not, what, what I mean by that is that, and this is, this is critically important, along with what I just said, and I said, said that point a few times, that it's always case by case. Along with that is that it will, it will, if it's a competent uh, conversation, then the medical facts on the ground will be paramount because every case medically is different. 
in every case, the risk and the this and the that, every, and the personalities are different. Of the, the, the dynamic of the family, of the mother, of the people, of the, of the individual involved is different. So that's what I'm saying. There's no hard and fast rule. What I think is, is valuable from Maimonides, and you're right, not from the medical side of it, but what's valuable from, uh, from the conversation that happens you know, way back when in Jewish thought is that you can start to see some principles of thought, some approaches, some angles of, of approach, which then can be applied as the facts on the ground changes. And it's true medically. So for example, if you think about the question of, you know, sometimes a person is faced with a question, uh, they have, God forbid, a disease, and there's some experimental treatments. And the doctors are saying, we can try this, we can try this experimental treatment, whether it's a treatment or surgery or whatever it is, but the, the, um, the mortality rate or the odds of it working are this, that, and the other. What do you want to do? I was like, I, I don't even know what I want to do. Like, I, I, do, do I want to roll the dice on it, not roll the dice? It's better not to do anything or to do something. It becomes very, very questionable. So Judaism, Jewish law has a framework of, of addressing this. But based on the medicine, it will change. So in other words, a treatment that is like highly risky, if it's very highly risky, in other words, it's a high mortality rate to undergo that treatment. So Jewish law might say that that is too reckless. In other words, the, 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 the risk is too much. Now, again, it's the doctors assessing the risk. But there might be a formula that comes after it to say that doing such would be too... Um, What's the right word I'm looking for? Too, um, too callous with one's own life. It's too, it's too, it, it, one, one is not allowed to gamble their life away on that level. But as the procedure gets more normalized and it becomes something that is, you know, a, a more, more of a viable alternative, then that might change. So that's a very long tangent to basically say that I agree with you, that Maimonides is not going to be the authority that we follow today or Rashi or whoever to tell us about the, me the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground, we need experts. And all of these rabbis, I mentioned, I think, last week, that how Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who weighs in on the abortion issue, was consulted, did I mention this, in a case of the conjoined twins? I, I think I mentioned, no, did I not, not mention this? There was a case in Philadelphia. It was a Philadelphia Children's Hospital, case of conjoined twins, and they shared one heart. Did I not mention this? I think you said last week you were going to talk about it. And I didn't. Okay, so I didn't. Right, I did mention it. I thought I mentioned it, and I, and I, I didn't. Who would have time to present it? But it was a case of, of, of sorry, um, Siamese twins. Siamese twins? I think that's the right term. They shared one heart. And the question that was, the doctors had the question. The family had the question. What do you do? Do you give birth? And I don't know. Do you split? If you split, only one lives, one dies. And, and C. Everett Koop, who was the head of the hospital and who later became the um, Surgeon, General. Surgeon General of the United States, said, we got to call the rabbi. <laughs> they called Rabbi Fine. This is a true story. You can look it up. Just type in Google, Philadelphia Children's Hospital, C. Everett Koop, Rabbi Feinstein. Yes, it was a, Jew, it was a Jewish family. And he said, we can't, the, the hospital, the internal hospital ethics committee, they, were, they didn't know what to say. Is it murder? Is it saving a life? Like, how do you view this? Do you not do anything? Do you do something? Which, and baby A or baby B? Who gets the heart? And they went to the rabbi, and, and they were consulting. But 
Trust me, the rabbi didn't say, well, Jewish law says this, that, or the other. <laughs> That's not at all what I, it's what, what's the medic, what's the, what are the facts on the ground, what's going on. Ultimately, I'll give you the spoiler, ultimately, the heart was actually, I think, closer to or maybe in one of the baby, like baby A or baby B, one of, the, one of them like had the heart, the other one was using the heart. And so the rabbi, uh, in consulting with the doctors, the conclusion was that it would not be considered to be taking the life of the other fetus since it's not viable on its own. And therefore they, um, they, they, did the sur- they did the procedure, they did the surgery. And um, one, one baby lived and one, one fetus lived and one, one did not. Um, but if only yeah. Yeah, that's what I that's what I love about Jewish law as well is that there's a flexibility because when you're dealing with the the you know the the the, the, the concepts, so you have a bit of a you have a bit of flexibility here and you can like look at the case and each case is going to be different and you know, go by facts on the ground. It's it would be nice to have flexibility and dialogue. That would be nice, right? That would, we need a, we need we need more of that. One thing I find this is a general point about the Talmud. And by the way, just I feel a little bit compelled to show you what the Talmud looks like, just very super quickly. The Talmud, this is mm, this is not the greatest sample because this is an English one, but it's a little bit reformatted. Let me try to find. Give me what like ten seconds here to, to pull a. Oh, here we go. I'm gonna get a thick volume here. Okay, this is the Talmud. <laughs> it's, it's a large book. It's a very large book. You know when they say that we'll throw the book at you, it means this, and it would be very, it would be very uh, painful. I'm kidding. So the Talmud. I'm going to open it up to a random page. This is what the Talmud looks like. Actually, means can I adjust this? I think I can adjust. It's like show and tell. Okay, let's adjust the angle here a little bit. You guys see it? Talmudic uh, text in the middle, Rashi, Tosfot, commentaries. Okay, so this is what it looks like. These are the commentaries after the page of the Talmud. Look how small that is. See how small the, the font is? Because these are all commentaries. That's why it's such a large book, because the print is so small, they have to make it large. Otherwise, you would make the whole book smaller and the print larger and have like twice as many pages. So in order to keep the page count, right, so you have all this. This is one tractate called Shabbat. I got it. These are the laws of, I saved its life. These are the laws of, uh, of Shabbat. And there's like, there's multiple, there's dozens of volumes of the Talmud. Um, what I find fascinating about the Talmud is all of the diversity of opinion is on the same page. What I mean is the rabbis that disagreed, they're all on the same page. This rabbi says this. Nowadays, just is reflected in the way things are published. Everyone has their own, their own, like, no, because there's no dialogue. So everyone just published this, published that. Everyone has, like, separate publications. The Talmud, they might have disagreed. But they're all on the same page, which means it was about the idea. There was a dialogue. There was respect between them. They could disagree about an issue. 
go out for the proverbial beer. I don't know that they went out for a beer, but conceptually, they were able to, they coexisted on the same page. And they came to consensuses, and, and they took votes, and they, and they moved on, and that was the way it was done. And I think we need more of that, more dialogue, and it's exactly like that. <laughs> right, we need a little bit more dialogue. And see that subjects are not simple. Correct. And, and even if you're more confused when you finish, at least you realize that it's not that it, that it's not black. It's and not black and white. Correct. And I think it's also powerful because if the Talmud just gave you one, one position, you might say, well, I disagree, and, and this is why. The Talmud brings that difference of opinion and goes through logical arguments on both sides. And so you know that your voice, let's say the one that you, was heard, was discussed, was debated. And that might not be, that might not have been the majority, whatever it is, but, but it's, it's, it has a place. You feel heard and seen. I just turned to a random page and this has pictures. That's kind of cool. I don't even know what these pictures are about. But there's, uh, there's geometric pictures over there, which is cool. Anyway. All right, pleasure. So look, there's so much more on the topic. We have, I don't know, we went over 60 minutes, but we have we had 60 minutes to deal with a topic that re would require, you know, almost, you know, who knows how much conversation. So hopefully you got some of the principles and some of the ideas. Again, uh, do not, when I say do not try this at all, I mean, do not try to take this and be like, well, this is what Judaism said. This is some of the conversation. There's a lot more to talk about. But next week, new topic, same time, same place. We'll see you then. Yeah, no, I said that I would have to look that up. Oh, that's I, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so I, I, so Faye said that she recalls hearing that it's or, or looking up that it's the, just the crown. The crown comes out. The baby is a baby. is now viable, right? So that's what she. So that's that's what Faye is reporting. I I would have to look that up for myself to to get clarity on that. Um, but that sounds like it could. I mean, that's. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not disputing that. But just saying, I, I don't. I don't know. I would have to look up what the commentators are saying on that. Thank yeah. you. Sure. Do you have handouts from last week? I have. Um, if they're not handy, email them. No, I know. But you want the physical copy? What I can do is I can print it out. No, no, I'll print it out. It will take me a minute. I just have All right. I don't think, I think I took them and stashed them somewhere. I don't think I have them around. All right. By the way, the Supreme Court quoted Christian people who talked about witches in the